Okay. All seven. Okay. Hi. I'm Charlie. Welcome. We have been on a journey uh, through John's Gospel. We have been in this, you know, several weeks. We're still in chapter one. Last week we were introduced to John the Baptist, the other John in the Gospel. Uh, we learned lots of things from John the Baptist last week. And this week we are going to continue with uh, this little story we touched on last week. We'll really focus on it today where John the Baptist starts pointing people to Jesus. So if you would, would you stand and we'll read the passage together. This is John 1, starting in verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Let's pray. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name. You guys can be seated. Okay, so just it's a good to remember when we're reading in John's Gospel about John the Baptist, it's a good reminder that we're talking about two different Johns here, right? Just like now, back then in, in Judea and Galilee, lots of people walking around named John. Kind of like, you know, today in Oregon, lots of Johns. Uh, so we're going to call him John the Baptist. Remember, that's the guy, that's the prophet that came to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's out there baptizing people. He's dressed in camel hair. He's eating honey and crickets. He's eccentric. And his whole thing is pointing people to Jesus. That's John the Baptist. And then there's John the Gospel writer. He was uh, the person who wrote this. He started out as one of the disciples of John the Baptist, ended up leaving John the Baptist's crew and joining Jesus' crew. We'll get to that, I think, next week. Um, and he's much younger at this point, and he never mentions himself by name in the gospel that he wrote. So that's kind of a clue. When the text says, John did this, John did that, it's talking about John the Baptist. Okay, so that being said, we have this little story here, and we covered it in part last week. Remember last week we talked about the ministry of John the Baptist, what he was doing, and we ended with this little section. It's when John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, look, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he gives this little speech 
about who Jesus is, and then he says, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. And that's kind of like his, um, kind of like his, like a summary of his whole ministry. Seeing and testifying to Jesus. We talked about how every Christian, that's what we're all called to do, is to look to Jesus and then reflect him, uh, show him to other people, whoever that is in our life, wherever we are in our life. So here's my question for today, and here's what I want us to consider. Uh, John the Gospel writer frames this little section where John the Baptist is like, look, there's Jesus, in a particular way. It starts out with, the next day, John saw Jesus come. That's important. All that stuff where John the Baptist is out there saying, you know, talking to the delegates from Jerusalem, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not, the, I'm not Elijah. All that stuff happened on one day, and then the Gospel writer wants us to know the next day, there was this thing that happened. John the Baptist sees Jesus coming towards him, and then he, he gives this little speech. So this, is, it's, this section, is, it's a story in and of itself. In the text, it's its own unit of thought. It's short, but there's a lot in here. So here's the question, big question for today. What did John the Baptist want to communicate to his hearers when he said, look, there he is, and gave the little speech. And what does John the Gospel writer want to communicate to us by including this little story in his Gospel? I'm working with the assumption that it's the same thing. That whatever John the Baptist wanted people to know about Jesus at that moment, John the Gospel writer writes this down. Hey, on Friday afternoon, or whatever, whatever day the next day was, this little thing happened, John the Baptist said this. What, in other words, what are we supposed to get out of this? What do the two Johns want us to know from this little story? I think it's important to stop and ask that because this little story is easy to pass over. We almost passed over it last week. We read it, we got one little thing, and then we could just keep moving on. But I want to stop because there's something here um, that's, I, guess, I want to say, critical for us to get. So what is it? Well, first, let's just take, I don't want to get lost here. I often get lost in context. I'll not do that today. Just a couple sentences. Uh, when and where is this happening? Well, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. He says, look, the Lamb of God. And then he says this thing. Uh, in verse 12, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And then he talk, starts talking about baptism. So, John the Gospel writer doesn't record the story of Jesus' baptism. Remember we read that earlier as the assurance pardon? John the Gospel writer doesn't record it. But when it happened was in between Somewhere in between John the Baptist saying, I'm not the prophet, and then, I'm sorry, somewhere before this whole episode that we're talking about, it's already happened. When the delegation comes to Jerusalem, asks John the Baptist a bunch of questions, and the next day he sees Jesus, by this point, Jesus' baptism had already happened. Jesus was coming back. If you have heard the story of Jesus' baptism or remember it, it goes something like this. 
He's hanging out with John the Baptist, John the Baptist's disciples. He's hanging out. People are getting baptized. Jesus goes down into the water. He says, hey, it's my turn to get baptized. John the Baptist is like, whoa, you should be baptizing me. Jesus says, nope, you're doing this to fulfill all righteousness. John the Baptist says, okay. He baptizes Jesus. We don't know if he, in the Bible, we don't know if, we just know baptism was with water and it was some kind of washing. Maybe he dipped Jesus into the water. Maybe he poured it over his head. Who knows? But there's water washing happening. And then after that, Jesus comes up out of the water. Uh, and then the heavens open. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes in the form of a dove, rests on or over Jesus' head. And then there's this voice from heaven, the voice of the Father. This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And it's this famous passage about we see the whole Trinity all together. The Father is pouring out his affection on the Son. The Son is receiving it through the Spirit. There's the Spirit in between them. And then, after that, it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the Satan for 40 days. So all of that happened. So, now come back to John's Gospel. The next day... John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Where was Jesus coming from? He was coming towards John. Well, he was coming from his wilderness time where he was led by the Spirit. Right? What happened before that? He got baptized. How do we know that? Because John the Baptist says, This is the guy uh, that we saw. Remember, we saw the Holy Spirit come and rest on him like a dove. And by the way, I baptize with water, but he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That's what's going on. Okay, back to our question. What are we supposed to learn from this? Uh, is this just information? Is it just a cool story? Is it just John the Baptist pointing to Jesus? Or is there more? Well, I think there's more. I believe there's more. Uh, I, I find three things that we need to take from this story. By we, I mean like me and you and you and you. Pope Press. Three things in the story we need to believe. First, we need to believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John the Baptist says. Look, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We need to believe that Jesus is the Spirit-anointed human. That's the second thing. I saw the Spirit come and rest upon him. And then the third thing is we need to believe that Jesus is the Spirit baptizer. I baptize with water. He baptizes with the Spirit. So these three things. Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Spirit-anointed human being. And Jesus is the Spirit baptizer. Those are the three things we need to learn. Okay? Great. Charlie, what do those three things mean? Let's go through them one at a time. Okay? First, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, we've been just, and we're still in the first chapter of John's Gospel, and we're going slow, but you, maybe you've noticed it's already apparent there's a lot of Old Testament imagery in uh, John's Gospel. John, the Gospel writer, at the time, seems to be writing primarily for a Greek-Gentile audience. But remember, he's Jewish. 
Uh, and Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. So in the text, there's all kinds of uh, Jewish imagery, Old Testament imagery. This is one of those. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lamb of God. Um, we don't need to spend another, like an hour going through the whole Old Testament and pulling out every time there's a lamb. Let me just give you like summary statement. Lambs in the Old Testament were used for sacrifice. Specifically, sacrifices for atonement. Do you guys know what atonement means? Atonement is what it means when there's something wrong in a relationship and it's made right. Maybe like a debt. There's a debt and then the debt is made right and goes away. It's atonement. Lambs were used alongside bulls and goats throughout the Old Testament to make atonement. They were used at the Passover. Remember when the people of Israel were in Egypt? There's a lot, all these plagues. The last plague was what? God taking the life of the firstborn. Well, the people of Israel, they took a lamb. They took the lamb's life and put the blood over the door. And then the angel of death, who was taking the lives of all the firstborn, they would come to that house and they would see, oh, there's already been a life taken here. The lamb's life was taken. So we won't take the life of the firstborn. The lamb's life instead of the child's life. And the angel would pass over the house. Passover. The lamb was given an atonement. Or we read through Leviticus. All those Old Testament priest laws. The sin offerings. And Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Lambs were sacrificed to make atonement for sins. And the idea was the lamb's life for your life. The lamb's spotless white wool coat in exchange for your sin-spotted heart. That's what lambs are in the Old Testament. You know, atonement uh, is making something right in a relationship that's wrong. Right? And one big image that goes with that in the Bible is ma like making a debt right. There's only three ways to settle a debt. The only three ways. So let's say that, um, I'll pick on Scott. Let's say that uh, I owe Scott $100. Whatever, you know, something happened and I owe Scott $100. Now, there's a debt between us. I owe him a debt. There's only three ways to make that debt go away, to atone for that debt. Our relationship cannot go on as it was, or as it should be, as peers and as friends, totally and openly, until that debt is settled, right? Broadly speaking, right? Only three ways to settle it. Way number one would be for me to pay the debt, for me to pay Scott $100. To do that, the debt is atoned for, it goes away, we go on fully reconciled, right? That's obvious. Another way to settle the debt would be for someone else to step in and pay, right? Say Kurt came up and he said, Charlie, look, I got you, buddy. Kurt pulls out a $100 bill, goes to Scott, says, this is for Charlie's debt. Kurt pays it. Well, that would settle the debt. It would be atoned for. The third way to settle the debt would be for Scott to say, you know what? I forgive you. I release you from the debt. Don't worry about it. It's over. It's gone. 
At that moment, the debt is atoned for. However, if Scott did that, it doesn't mean that nobody paid. It means that Scott paid. He's already lost the $100 when he loaned it to me. And for him to say, you know what? Just let it go, don't worry about it. It's really like the second thing. He's paying himself on my behalf. Now in the Old Testament, when lambs were used to make atonement, it was like that second way of settling the debt. Me, I have sinned. Atonement needs to be made for my sins. In my sin, I, I owe God a debt. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So I would go, and, I would, and it was, God, God showed us how to do this. I would take a lamb. I can't pay this debt. There's no way I could do it. So what I'm going to do is this, this lamb is going to pay the debt on my behalf. What's the debt? What's well, my life? So we're going to take the life of the lamb, the lamb's life for my life. That's so that's Old Testament. The second way, like Kurt paying Scott on my behalf. But there's a problem. Lambs aren't people. They're not human. So if you have a debt that's a, that's a human debt, the life of a lamb can actually never totally cover it. We read about in the book of Hebrews how the whole Old Testament sacrificial system, the whole substitutionary atonement of the Old Testament, the blood of bulls and lambs could never take away sin. Why? Because they're animals. They're not men and women and kids. They're not human. A lamb's life for a human life isn't a one-to-one. -one. That's the way the author of Hebrews talks about it. So it must have been a symbol to help us understand some other kind of atonement that's going to take place. Well, John says, he points to Jesus and he says, look, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. It's like he's saying, the Lamb who is enough, because he comes from the one who is infinite. And by enough, I mean enough for everybody. It's like John the Baptist is saying, there he is, the ultimate Lamb, the final Lamb who fulfills all the symbols, who does the whole thing. That's the lamb. That's the one that pays the debt. That's what he's saying. Here's the kicker, though. We already know from the first part of John's Gospel that the incarnate Christ, Jesus himself, is God. But John the Baptist is saying, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Only three ways to settle a debt. It's really not the second thing. It's really not somebody else coming to pay our debt on our behalf. It's really the third thing. God himself taking the debt in upon himself, saying, you know what? Let's just get rid of it. I'll take the loss. I'll take the hit. And when Jesus went to the cross, what we see there is we see God taking our debt into himself. We see God paying it himself. On the cross, what we see is what it costs for God to say, you know what? Don't worry about it. And it's enough to take away, not just delay, 
talking about it, not just defer our sins, not just ignore our sins, not just hide them behind a curtain until we sin again. No, to take the sins away. Because when God takes your sin and he takes it into himself, guess what? That's a place that you can't go retrieving. John the Baptist is saying, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just the sin of the children of Israel. Not like Passover. We use the Passover metaphor. It's like the Lamb who takes away, who, who spares the life of the sons of Israel, but also the sons of Egypt. Takes away the sins of the whole world. And you know what? I'm looking around this room. In case there's something I don't know about some of our uh, background and heritage, that whole world piece, that's us. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think anyone in here is a son or daughter of Israel by ethnicity. So we're here today because we were the other that the Lamb of God came to save. That's awesome. So, I think that there is an immediate application for our church in considering this. You know, we really need to believe this. I think everything I've said so far, I think many of us in here go, yeah, I know that. With the gospel, I got it. But there is a direct application for our church, and it's this. When John the Baptist said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he had been standing there for who knows how long, maybe years, saying, repent, believe, and be baptized. And people were coming, and they were getting baptized, and they were leaving, and they were having all kinds of church right down there at the Jordan River. And all of it was good, and it honored God, and it was real. But when John the Baptist says, look, I baptize with water, he baptizes with the Holy Spirit, one of the things he's saying to us today, Hope Chris, is that us coming here on Sundays and going through the motions, singing our songs, listening to me talk to you for more than 30 minutes, coming up here and taking communion and leaving, all of this outward religious activity, in and of itself, it means nothing. It's only as good as the activity of the Spirit in, around, and underneath it. And I think sometimes it's easy for us to take pride and, oh, we come to church every week. We are faithful. We talked about this last week. We have our traditions. We are doing our thing. John the Baptist, the baptizer, the new prophet of the people of God, the master liturgist, the celebrity preacher, the whole thing. He stands and he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, I'm just baptizing with water, folks. I think that's good for us to remember. What's real about Sunday mornings that hope? Jesus. The Holy Spirit. And the Father. And us. Okay, let's move on. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We need to hold on to that. We need that. Here's the second thing. We need to know that he is the spirit-anointed human. This is something we don't talk about as much. 
We talk all kinds of things all the time about Jesus being the Lamb of God. But what does it mean that he is the Spirit-anointed human? John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. What John is saying is, guys, remember when we baptized Jesus like 41 days ago and the heavens opened up and that dove came down? That dove was the Spirit of God. And he came down and he rested on Jesus. I don't know if it landed on Jesus' head or hovered above Jesus. We don't know. We, we know that it came down upon him. And that's the important thing. The picture there is one of anointing. Now, we want to interpret this, again, through the Old Testament. John the Gospel writer, that's his frame of reference for us. So what does anointing mean in the Old Testament? What does it mean when someone in the Old Testament is anointed? Well, it means one of three things. It means either the person is being anointed to be a prophet, like Elijah anointed Elisha uh, and ordained him to the office of prophet. Prophet is someone who speaks for God to the people. Or it means someone is being anointed to be a king, like the prophet Samuel poured oil over David's head and anointed him to be king. Or it means someone is being anointed to be a priest, like Moses poured oil over Aaron's head, and he became a priest. Anointing in the Old Testament was for prophets, for priests, and for kings. So John says, look, here he is. I saw the Spirit come down upon him. He's speaking of anointing. Now this anointing is not just anointing with oil. Not just the anointing of baptism, pouring water over someone's head. It's anointing with the Holy Spirit. Prophet, priests, and king, these are ways that throughout the history of the church we have talked about the offices of Christ. What did Jesus do in the world, and what is he doing now? Well, he's doing a prophetic work. He's the Word of God. He speaks to us on God's behalf. We want to know what God's saying. We pay attention to Jesus. He came to Galilee and he came to Judea and his preaching, that was God's words for the world. In fact, he himself is what God has to say to us. Jesus is the great prophet. Well, did Jesus just become the great prophet just because he wanted to be? No. He was anointed to that office. Just like I was ordained to be a pastor in our presbytery, Jesus was anointed to the office of prophet at his baptism by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. John is saying, look, there he is. So when Jesus speaks, we're hearing the words of a prophet. We're hearing the words of God. Why? Because he's anointed to that. How? By who? By the Holy Spirit who came down on his head. That's significant. Jesus is our priest. He stands in two worlds. 
He is fully God and fully man. He is a human being even today. He's a human being with scars in his hands or his, his wrists where nails were. He's human. He's one of us. Even in his resurrected body, he's eating breakfast, hugging folks. He was born. He's human, but he's also fully God. He continues to fill the heavens, the divine sun. He lives in two realms, like a priest. Priests are people who live in two worlds. They operate in the physical, in the here and now, in the human world, but they also do business in the metaphysical, in the divine world. Priests are people who make atonement for sins. We talked about that. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Well, how did Jesus become a priest? Did he just decide one day that I'm, I'm just going to do this? No. He was anointed to that office. When? At his baptism. By the Holy Spirit. Like Moses poured oil on Aaron's head. The Father anoints Jesus with the dove of the Holy Spirit. Check this out. We say in the Creed, we talk about how Jesus, how the Son is Jesus is fully God and fully human at the same time, right? And then we say that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, right? Or he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. How did fully God and fully man come together to become one person in two natures? Without division, without separation, without mixing, without confusion. How did that happen? How did the union of God and human in Christ come to be? It came to be by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary. And the God-human was conceived in her womb. God and humanity come together even in the person of Christ. How? By the Holy Spirit. Hold on to that one. Last, Jesus is king. Like David was anointed. Jesus is the king. Is Jesus the king because we decided to make him king? No. Is Jesus the king because he came in and he conquered the world? No. Is Jesus the king for a hundred million other reasons? Not really. How and why is Jesus the king? Because he was anointed to that office. How? By the Holy Spirit. When? At his baptism. Pastor Charlie, why are you going on and on about this? Here's why. The work that Jesus did that we read about in the New Testament, from his conception all the way to his ascension, and the work that he continues to do at the right hand of the Father on our behalf, is a prophetic work, it's a priestly work, and it's a kingly work. How does he do these things? By the Holy Spirit. Let me put it this way. When God became a human being in the person of Jesus, and was born of the Virgin Mary, and grew and learned, and started walking around Galilee and Judea as a Jewish rabbi, teaching about the kingdom, and then went to the cross for our sins and for the sins of the world, and rose from the dead for our justification. Did he do that 
And was he able to do that? Was he drawing from his own divine nature? When he healed people, was he just reaching into his godness deep inside and pulling out a little bit of divine and using it to heal people? No. All of his work that he does, that we read about here, he does as God and as human, but he does the work through the Holy Spirit. Resting in Him, relying on Him, drawing from Him. The Holy Spirit is His power. The Holy Spirit is His calling. The Holy Spirit is His companion. The Holy Spirit is His anointing. Did you know that? Did you know that the Jesus that we worship? who does all kinds of God things, yet he's human, the way he does those God things is not by drawing on his own Godness. No. It's by drawing on the Spirit of his anointing. Why is this important? Well, it might help you next time you find yourself in uh, theology trivia somewhere. It's kind of a joke. Sorry. It, is, it does come across as sort of like deep, like trivial, like heady theological knowledge, but don't receive it like that. This is important because it demonstrates to us something that's true now, that was true then in Judea, and has always been true for all eternity. It's this. The works of the Trinity are undivided. The works of the Trinity are undivided. Every single thing that God does, He does as Father, Son, and Spirit. Everything that the Son does, even before the Incarnation, and then since, from, as Sinclair Ferguson said, from womb to tomb to throne, He does reliant. Every single, every single thing that God does, he does as Trinity. St. Augustine explained it like this. He said the Spirit is, uh, he says the Spirit is the gift that is given by the Father to the Son. He's the gift that's given by the Son to the Father. He's the love that has eternally existed between them. It's, I kind of grew up thinking of the Trinity as, as like a triangle. But what Augustine does is he thinks of the Trinity in this way as you have the Father and the Son just pouring out their love, giving the gift of love to each other back and forth for all eternity. Now, love between two parties is given in a context. Love always takes place in a context. Love takes place in your heart. Love takes place in relationship, love takes place in a moment. So the question is, in what context does the Father pour out his love on the Son, and does the Son pour out his love on the Father? Before the world was created, before time and space, where did the Father and the Son love one another? And the answer is, in the context of the Holy Spirit. 
So St. Augustine talks about the Trinity almost like two people in a room, just showering one another with love. And the Holy Spirit is the room. I like that metaphor. Because it helps me to understand how or we see in the baptism, the Father pouring out his favor on the Son, and in between them is the dove. This helps me to understand the dynamic that's happening in the Trinity. So when Jesus comes onto the scene and he starts doing Lamb of God things, when he starts doing kingly things, prophetic things, priestly things, to the glory of the Father, when he starts saying what the Father tells him to say, he does all of this in the Spirit. You see it? What's happening in the inner life of God? What happens when we pull back the curtain? What does God do at home on his day off? It's a metaphor. The Spirit is what's happening. Now, here's why that's amazing. John and John, both Johns, want us to know that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They want us to know that Jesus is the Spirit-anointed human, and they want us to know that Jesus is the Spirit-baptizer. John says, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. You got that image in your mind of uh, the Father and the Son at the baptism and the dove in between them? Um, you have the image in your mind of the Father and the Son in the room, but the Spirit is the room, is the context. Now the Son has come as a Spirit-anointed human in order to baptize us with the Spirit. And when we do baptism here, it's like John's baptism. It's with water. But there's a spiritual reality that's behind it. What's the spiritual reality? It's Spirit baptism. Now in the metaphysical universe, it doesn't always happen at the same time and place. We believe that it happens by faith. We baptize in faith that someone will grow into that faith. And at some point, we baptize with the Spirit. But here's the point. If the Son has always acted by the Spirit, from the Spirit, through the Spirit, if the Father has always acted by the Spirit, from the Spirit, through the Spirit, and Jesus in the world does everything that he does, prophet, priest, and king, through the Spirit, Guess what happens when Jesus takes the Spirit and pours him over your head? Or takes you by the hand and dunks you underneath the water of the Spirit. Guess what happens? It's like he takes you by the hand and leads you into the room. Where him and the Father have shared love for all eternity. You'll get a seat there. It's like he takes you by the hand and brings you to his side, which is at the side, or like it says in, in the prologue, in, in the bosom of the Father. You get incorporated into the inner life of God. In 1 Peter, this is what Peter's talking about when he says that we as Christians partake in the divine nature. This is what Athanasius will read about, was talking about when he says that God became like we are so that we could become like he is. 
Folks, this is the gospel. That God came into our world as a human being so that we could go into his world and be where God is. To share in the life of God. That's what we believe is the good news. Not just for us. Not just the Lamb of God for us. For the world. And we don't do this because we're smart. We don't do this because we're good. When we do this, it's all a gift. The Spirit is a gift. Herman Bavink said the Spirit was a gift long before he was ever given to us. Every single thing we do here is giftness. We don't deserve any of it. I love that this passage starts with John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. Not him leading the party to go find Jesus. Here's, here's the last piece of this. If Jesus fulfilled his life calling to be the prophet of God for the world, to be the priest of God for the world, to be the king of the world, that's the God-man. If Jesus fulfilled his calling by his spirit anointing, when he pours out the Holy Spirit on you, on our church, Nobody can tell us, and nobody can tell you that you don't have what it takes to be everything that God has created you to be. You can Monday through Friday, or like some of us, Sunday through Sunday, go work your job knowing that God has put you there in that office or behind that wheel, or in front of that desk, or whatever it is you do, knowing that you are there because you are a spirit-anointed human being to do that job. You can parent, know that you're, knowing that your parenting is coming, you are drawing from life that comes from baptism in the Holy Spirit. You can be a kid and obey your parents and listen to them, even though they might be saying something you don't understand at all. And you can do school, and you can be creative and have fun, knowing that the life that you are living, you are drawing from baptism in the Holy Spirit. Folks, everything that God has in his inner life, he has given to us in Christ. That's the gospel. Do you believe it? Or do you just want to do outward religion? Let's pray.